0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Satellite Image Deep Learning Podcast. This one will be quite different, as it's the first one hosted by myself, Mikołaj Czerkowski, also known as Miconvergence. I have so far been involved in the co-production of the episodes, which initially started when I offered help with the editing of the first episode, where I participated as the guest. What I want to bring for the new episodes is a slightly more in-depth technical perspective on selected developments and engage in wider discussions with remote sensing experts. For that reason, this episode will feature not one, but three guests and involve a certain degree of interaction. At this point, it's time to introduce the topic of the work. The applications of deep learning for 3D understanding of satellite images. The majority of the satellite images we get to work with these days are 2D projections from the perspective of a sensor placed on a satellite. However, in many cases, we need the context of the 3D structure of the sensed phenomena. Now, in some cases, this can be learned implicitly, but there is quite a lot of interesting work being pursued in the direction of building models capable of approximating 3D representations directly. Our guests will demonstrate the applications of neural radiance fields, or NERFs to Earth observation data, and the context of combining satellite images with Google Street View records. This episode will dive a bit into each guest's research, which will be followed by a discussion. You can use time markers in the description to navigate between different stages of the episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Thank you all for joining me today and agreeing to share your work. Uh, we have three guests today, starting with Dawah Drexsen, responsible for the seminal contribution of shadow Nerf. Developed at the European Space Agency, Roger Marie from Paris Saclay, uh, who contributed further advancements in this area uh, with SatNerf and EO Nerf, and finally Yuji Aoshi uh, from the Australian National University, who has produced many works on the topic of linking satellite images with Google Street View uh, footage. Um, so I would like to start with a set of introductions. Uh, if each one of you um, can uh, give a uh, Provide your story and uh, where you work, where you come from, when when your journey with EO Data has started, um, and I think we can start with Dawa, then Roger, then Yujiro, just like the order of the presentations that are uh, coming next.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Miko. It's really nice to be here uh, on your your podcast. It's a very real pleasure to be um, invited to such a cool kind of event. Uh, so, my story with EO data started off when I did my PhD uh, at the Net, uh, French space agency, so the CNES, uh, which is also uh, where I'm working right now, where I'm <laughs> sitting right now as well. Um, so, I was started off working with land classification, so detecting different um, types of buildings and roads and water and stuff like that in uh, Sentinel-2 images. Um, and that led me later on to work for two years at ESA. Um, where I started off at the Advanced Concepts Team, which is a, sort of a think tank innovation team within uh, the European Space Agency, where I really started off working with uh, nerfs and with three um, D data. Um, I did uh, two years of postdoc there and came back to the Kness afterwards, uh, which I've been working here for for about a year now, pursuing the work on NERF, uh, amongst other things, and also starting to sort of direct research uh, with interns and PhDs and that kind of thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Roger? Yes, so uh, yeah, my name is uh, Roger Marie and uh, I come uh, from Barcelona. Uh, So, my story with uh, Earth Observation started when I uh, arrived in Paris in 2018 uh, to start a PhD Mm -hmm. on uh, satellite imagery which I was not familiar with at the time. But uh, yeah, so uh, I had done some uh, previous work on uh, camera calibration and then I jumped into the calibration of the uh, camera models of uh, satellite images which are typically represented with RPC functions and not with a classic uh, pinhole model. So uh, yeah, I I got some experience on that. And then afterwards, I moved more onto the 3D reconstruction uh, problem, for which I've been uh, playing with a little bit with the stereo matching nets, and then uh, NERF. And uh, yeah, I saw the work of DAWA at one point, and so I, I found it fascinating, and then I we started working uh, a little bit on that at the Centre at the Gorelli, uh, where I am uh, now working. And okay. uh, the results that I will present, uh, I think, uh, will be interesting in that line. Okay, perfect. Yu Xiao?
3: Yeah, uh, my name is Yi Xiao Shi. Uh, I, w- I was originally from China. And I did a PhD degree in Australia starting from 2018. And I just graduated this year. Now I'm a research fellow at the same university. Uh, I started on satellite image-based localization for my PhD thesis. Yeah, after a few of years research on that, and I found that. In a, uh, the localization task may be aided for autonomous driving. And in this task, the cross-wheel synthesis is very essential to guarantee better and robust localization performance. So I also have some works on synthesis tasks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I had to internship during my PhD, but uh, it's not related to satellite image. It's about okay. ARVR applications. Yeah.
0: So, so did yeah, you start yeah. working with EO data during the PhD?
3: Yes, you're in the
0: okay. PhD. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um okay, perfect. So with the introductions done, I think we can start with uh, an overview of uh, your work uh, starting with Dawa. Um Dawa, can you give us an uh, introductory summary of neural implicit representations or nerf for Earth observation? I think that's I think where we should start. Uh, before we go to more advanced uh, methods uh, that we cover today.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the real idea here behind um, applying these sort of implicit representation and specifically NERF-related uh, models to Earth observation comes from the sort of a push uh, nowadays in our new ways of taking satellite images, which causes uh, us to have these sort of large data sets where we actually have a lot of different satellite images that are taken from different viewing angles uh, of the same scene so historically we didn't necessarily have this but now we realize more and more that on especially on urban areas we have sort of a revisit uh frequency that's very a lot more regular and even though sometimes it does cover the span of maybe five to ten years we still are able to produce these larger and larger data sets of uh, multi-view satellite images so the images that i'm showing here uh, on the left are from a worldview satellite which uh, have been collected in the context of a competition so these are only taking over a relatively short span of one year um, but there's been also some very, very interesting works in the direction of expanding this notion to historical data, maybe covering 10 years of, of data, including all of the changes that are related to that in the scene. Um, so we have the data. That's that's my main point. First of all, the data mm-hmm. exists, which is usually a good, a good place to start off with when doing uh, machine learning or, or AI related uh, stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And to clarify, this is quite unique, I think, because uh, for those who are not familiar with these representations, we have a large data set, but it's basically constrained to a single location in some sense, because we're optimizing a single network per location. Is that what what happens with NERF?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you can see here on, this, on the on the slide, you have this uh, multi-view set of images, and we're extracting one volumetric representation for the entire scene. Um, and this is something so it, that... So it's as if you were training a
0: separate neural network model for every single location, in some sense, to build a 3D representation of that that location. Is that that what
1: happens? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, using this neural network for this one specific scene, we can actually extract new views of the scene from previously unseen viewing angles. This is uh, what we call novel view synthesis. Mm We can also extract the depth or the 3D representation of the scene. So it would be the depth if uh, if it's viewed from above. But we can actually also generate this depth map from any uh, of the viewing angles, uh, any arbitrary angle. Um, And then in a later stage, uh, we could also convert this neural representation, this nerf of the scene. We can uh, convert it into a polygonal 3D surface model, so a mesh that People in the computer vision community are probably a lot more used to uh, manipulating. So, a colored mesh, a textured mesh. Um, the advantage of the the mesh representation is that it allows for faster uh, rendering times and potentially even applications in VR or AR setting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, what's uh, funny is that since this, uh, since I made these slides uh, two years ago. We also realized that we're able to extract a lot more out of these um, representations. For example, we can figure out where are the shadows uh, in the representation. Um, We can even potentially try to remove them. In the work that Roger is going to present as well, we'll, we're going to talk about uh, transient objects and cars and stuff like that. So this is just a a small, yeah, just the tip of the iceberg of what we're actually able to do with these sort of neural. Uh, implicit representations.
0: Okay, that's that's great. So as far as I know, your 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 work was one of the first or the first to apply NeRF to Earth observation data. So I was wondering if you could introduce uh, that work from a few years ago, and maybe also give some uh, background of of how it came uh, through the development and how it came to be from. Uh, from being an idea or or what inspired it to being something that's actually uh, something that uh, we can publish and we can build on top of?
1: Yeah, so it it happened two years ago uh, when I was a postdoc at the Advanced Concepts team and my boss, Dario Itzo, who's also the co-author of the paper uh, Shadow Nerf, sat me down and said, "Um, your topic is Earth observation uh, with AI. Go ahead. And so I was a bit, I was a bit lost for for a month or two months. I've, maybe other other postdocs or PhD students out there have also felt this feeling of kind of you know, looking for a new idea, looking for something to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I came across the the Nerf work, and I thought originally I thought it would be very cool to apply this to comets or to asteroids or to um, you know faraway bodies uh, in in an Earth uh, sorry in a space exploration context. But then mm-hmm. I thought, well, actually, I did my PhD on Earth observation, so maybe we should start uh, somewhere more reasonable uh, in a more mastered context where we actually also have the data, right? Um, mm-hmm. And what really, I think, what was really interesting about the this this work is is sort of the continuous nature of the representation, um, which I can actually talk about a bit more on this mm-hmm. this next slide. Okay, let's so go the, on then. The um, the fact that the representation um, is moving away from something that's discrete, like a voxel grid, which is a discrete Mm -hmm. representation, or a mesh, or a point cloud. Uh, These are the commonly uh, used 3D representations. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that this representation was really continuous and defined by a set of parameters that are hidden inside a neural network, I thought that was uh, very, very interesting, because we're no longer constrained to a certain resolution, to a certain number of points, uh, or mesh elements um and right. that that was really what sort of sold it for me uh i thought okay uh here we're we're on i mean these uh, obviously the researchers at at google and stanford who came up with the nerf work originally uh we can credit them as well um, mm-hmm. they were the ones who who really came up with the idea but i thought this is extremely interesting and, and could potentially be applicable to earth observation as well
0: right so to re- reiterate we're we're not constrained to basically saving uh, a signal uh, as a discrete set of points, but rather we just try to build a network that can pretty much give us a value for that signal in any in at any coordinate point. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Any, any, any 3D point uh, XYZ, we're able to. <clears throat> the neural network is able to encode a color, which in our contexts is RGB values as well as a density, sigma, which actually represents the geometry of the scene or what uh, what surfaces are opaque and what surfaces are... Tra- or what body is transparent. So it's sort of the okay. interaction between light and matter, which is modelled within this uh, network.
0: Okay, great.
1: So I think it's uh, that's a good
0: time to dive a bit deeper into Shadow Nerve. So if you can... Uh, I think that the best way to... Uh, maybe uh, outline this work is to um, summarize how, like, what challenges there were um, in when you translated a, uh, a pipeline from sort of a computer vision uh, vanilla NERF setting to something that has to work with Earth observation data uh, and more specifically satellite images. I think it's really interesting to Kind of uh, showcase how uh, how this approach had to be adjusted in, in in various ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe before doing that, we'll just uh, look a little bit at a few equations um, because it's uh-huh. important to understand these in order to understand later on what changes needed to be made to them to adapt them to the satellite setting. Okay. So I'm not going to enter into too much uh, detail. I mean, these equations are are all very well explained in the the Nerf paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to be quick, we have mainly this discrete uh, form of uh, volume rendering equation, which tells us how are we going to um, yeah, render a color uh, along array. So for each pixel in the image, uh, that's what we're going to do. How are we actually going to translate these hidden weights and biases in the neural network into something that's really visualizable by uh, human eyes, or in this case, into an image? okay so this equation actually ends up being quite simple to see it's just a weighted sum uh, with weights uh, equal to the transparency multiplied by the opacity um, so it, and and what is really key here as well is that this representation is differentiable um, sorry this equation is differentiable so that it can then later be back propagated through into the neural network weights
0: okay so the neural network basically acts uh, as a model for what happens to a light ray as it travels through space? Is that what we're doing? So we're effectively rendering the changes that are made to the lights transmitted in space. And then using that neural network, we can approximate what the received color is for an image.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And then by comparing that received color to the real color, we can learn the neural network. Okay. That's what I'm going to show here in the next slide. So here, if we go back to this uh, visualization where we have the training images on one side, we actually render um, the image from one of the points of view, and then we compare it to uh, what we really see. And obviously, at the initial iteration, the network is randomly initialized, so doesn't look like uh, very much. But as we advance uh, through the iterations and also add all of the other images into the representation, um, the representation starts looking more and more like this little building, and if we leave it, let it to train long enough. Because as we know, neural networks are notoriously good at memorizing the data. Uh, this is actually something here which which we want it to do. Um, mm-hmm. so, after- so what we're doing is we have
0: these different views from satellite, and we're optimizing the network to produce the right kind of
1: color after after rendering uh, over race. Is that correct? That's correct, and if we have okay. enough of these views, sort of the only way that the network can actually manage to successfully produce a new view is by learning what the scene really looks like in terms of geometry and in terms of color. Okay, uh, I think a, a question that uh, some in the audience might have is like,
0: do we get enough like variety in angles and satellite images uh, that we get, and whether it's sensor dependent? Because in, in NERF, we have often like a large variety of angles, at least in the vanilla, uh, works. Is there a difference between this and the original nerve, or do we get a, uh, or is, is, or do we get a
1: similar uh, type of variety? We do not get a similar type of variety in satellite images. We, you can imagine, a, if you imagine a cone above the scene, the cone would be about uh, sixty degree wide, so thirty degrees on either side. Um, That's pretty much what we consider to be reasonable, uh, at least on this kind of data. There are some satellites that produce data that's um, more inclined. Mm -hmm. Um, But the tricky aspect with that is the more you incline your satellite off of the vertical angle, the further away from the scene it is physically. And the more you sort of degrade the spatial resolution of your Mm -hmm. image. So the quality of your image becomes more and more blurry. So eventually, okay. it's not really even worth taking a picture because you're you're too far away and you're just going to see these huge pixels. So indeed we are limited by that. But um, one thing that my work and also all the follow up works later showed is that, in spite of that uh, limitation, we're still able to learn uh, something that that really re- represents the geometry of the scene. Um, okay. And even previous uh-huh. works also f- functioned with this limited viewing angles and are still able to reconstruct three uh, D geometry. So, it is limiting in the in a sense, but it's not that limiting.
0: Right. Okay. Um, I don't know what's. It's uh, is that the shadow? Like uh, I don't know if we have more
1: slides on the shadow yeah, nerf. We, we do. So, um, moving on to what exactly was the motivation for the nerf? Um, to become Shadow Nerf. Why did I decide to call my paper Shadow Nerf and not something else as well? Um, because when I first uh, tried it out, uh, I realized that the shadows were a big problem. Because like I said earlier, we have these multi-view sets of images, but they're actually all uh, taken at different moments in the day. Um, when you pass, when the satellite passes over once, it can take, let's say, three pictures at max. And so mm-hmm. those have pretty much the same uh, sun conditions. But then if you pass another day uh, at a different time of year, the sun is going to be in a completely different location and the shadows will have completely moved. Now, Mm -hmm. in the original Nerf paper, they didn't have this. They were working on scenes that were captured, for example, with a smartphone indoors. So in those conditions, the lighting uh, conditions are fixed and constant. And so you're able to model only the radiance of the scene, and that's fine. but in my case, it just simply didn't work. So I was having a lot of problems uh, in the shadows. And I decided to make that the main focus of my research to really try to deal with the, the shadows as a priority. Um, and mm-hmm. this uh, these illustrations also show how the taking into account these shadows, making a more complete and a more complex model, which really accounted for shadows, also allows allowed us to really extract better images in terms of novel view synthesis and a much better 3D representation in terms of surface mm-hmm. shape. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how exactly did I do that? i um, not going to enter into too many details here, but I may- had to make a few uh, introductions to the model by introducing mm-hmm. new physical properties, so outputs to the model, which, by the way, is something that's quite straightforward in a Nerf-like approach. Um, which is also something that I, I really appreciated about this method is sort of the flexibility to add new inputs and outputs to the model without, you know, compared to a voxel grid without really exploding the dimension of the model. Because it's just a, mm-hmm. just a neural network and it's relatively straightforward to put more inputs and outputs. Okay. So here uh, what I'm modeling, uh, first of all, is the the shadows. So is a point in space within the shadow. Um, And that actually depends on where the sun is in the sky uh, at that moment. So depends on X and also on this omega S, which is the the angle of the sun. Um, And then the second thing that I realized also that I had to model uh, was the color of the sky, because the sky actually represents about 30 percent of the light that's received in the shadows. Um, so if I didn't ca- account for this sky color, uh, for this ambient light source, that's, that's happening in the scene, I was actually getting shadows that were way too dark compared to what I was okay. seeing in the images. So interestingly enough, a bit, bit, a little bit ironic as well, the network is able to learn also that the sky is blue without ever yeah. seeing a picture of the sky, just by seeing the sh- color of the shadows, um, say before and after, uh, learning.
0: Okay, and sky is, sky color is a more global variable, is that not? It seems like it's lower dimensionality than the ratio of incoming solar light?
1: Um, or uh, it, this it, well, R2? It's, yes, it's R2 as the input because I considered that the amount of uh, sky light was equal everywhere in the scene. So it did not depend on the position x uh, exactly. at the point in, in space, but it does... I did allow it to depend on the solar angle. So, say if the sun is lower or higher in the sky, uh, depending on the date, um, you would get a different sky color. Uh, this is far from being a perfect model, and actually, I think that the the follow up works uh, sort of remo- um, may have removed this or reworked it a little bit to, to be a bit more physically representative. Um, okay. It it worked for me, and it gave me a pretty good results. So that that was what I that was what I went for.
0: Okay, okay, but I think the interesting point here as well is that with uh like implicit neural networks, we have this flexibility to just model signals in various spaces together and like various kind of uh input input factors or whether it's coordinates or uh sun angle uh, I think it's quite nice to uh work with these methods where we have this flexibility um yeah, absolutely um, um,
1: So moving on, just a few little illustrations of what these different things look like. So one thing that was interesting is once you account for uh, the shadows and the skylight, and you really have this more complete model of what's going on in your scene, you can actually extract uh, what I call here the albedo, which is really the intrinsic color of um, the surface of the scene. So independent of how it's being lit up, independent of where it's being seen from, you have this sort of intrinsic real color. What it, what it is really in the scene? So that's really mm-hmm. interesting because it, it'll allow you to see vegetation uh, under a different, in a different way than uh, you know concrete or uh, the tiles or or different materials. Basically, can can be seen in a lot more of a clear way uh, using this albedo. Um, so that, okay. I thought that was really nif- uh, really nifty, and really cool that the model was also yeah. able to model uh, albedo as well.
0: Yeah, so it's these methods effectively allow us to approximate various factors in our in, in the environment we observe. So there's this kind of actual state of the scene that we are observing, but there's also a set of conditions we are observing it at. And it seems that these methods allow us to separate the two and get a better idea of what the actual underlying conditions are, uh, regardless
1: of how we view it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that's often referred to in papers, uh, especially in Nerf papers, papers as disentangling the different aspects of the scene.
0: Absolutely. Because okay. When, that's... We, when we
1: take a picture, all of this is sort of entangled together. You have mm-hmm. shadows in one, the sky is lighting it up. So everything is kind of entangled. But then when you have enough of these different uh, pictures, you're kind of able to pull these different aspects apart and that's what we call disentangling, these, these different things.
0: OK. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, so I don't know how many slides we have left. We'll have to I, move I, I on can,
1: soon. I can skip, uh, yeah, let's just skip, on, skip out on this one and this one. I feel like, yeah, probably we can just skip up, skip on the rest.
0: Uh, I think we can maybe there. just go over the Shadow Remover quickly and then proceed to uh, larger so like, OK, this one? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, so we- on this slide, I'm showing a few of the results uh, as well that I was able to produce. Um, so above, you can see that here that the shadow removal sort of works. It's far from perfect uh, in the SNRf model. Um, the sh- a lot of the shadows that are on the ground have been removed properly, but a lot of the shadows that are along the facades of buildings are actually still remaining. Um, so that was something that w- really needed to be worked on. And I think that uh, uh, Roger's work, uh, actually addressed all of those problems. And the second yeah. point, which it was is. quite interesting in, in the work and something that I really didn't expect or didn't aim for at the beginning, um, was the fact that the representation that was learned by the shadow nerf model was actually able to sort of remove or to smooth out a lot of the transient objects. So transient objects are sort of cars that are a lot of, in a lot of cases here, we have cars in parking lots. And these cars are not present in all of the images, which is why we call them transient. And because uh, the shadow nerf model was sort of averaging out the representation throughout the year, you kind of get this average representation where you don't really have too many cars in one space uh, unless it's this parking spot that's being parked in every single day of the year or in every single satellite image. So that's one thing that I also appreciated about this, uh, working on this is I aimed for for one thing and I actually got a lot more uh, out of it. So that's always very satisfying in research when you can go beyond uh, your initial goals.
0: Okay, very cool. I think, uh, yeah, at this point we can do uh, a segue to Roger's work, because we've discussed some of the issues that we've uh, faced in the uh, early methods. So uh, I will f- start with a question about the Earth Observation Nerve project and uh, ask you, Roger, uh, how it relates to the previous uh, work done by Dawa and uh, what kind of uh, solutions have been developed as part of the of the larger project.
2: Yeah, so well, thank you, Dawa, for uh, your previous uh, introduction to neural uh, radiance fields and, uh, and uh, Earth observation. So uh, we saw in in this uh, previous Shadow Earth approach uh, the opportunity to to build uh, a tool that uh, follows an opportunistic strategy, that is to take advantage of all the high-resolution satellite images that are available over an area of interest. And uh, by all we mean that there is no problem if they are taken on uh, different acquisition dates, so we can exploit that uh, aspect of the of the data. And yeah. um, this is in contrast to uh, stereo methods or multi-view stereo pipelines, which typically uh, rely on the availability of uh, stereo products, uh, where uh, well both images are uh, acquired semi simultaneously. At the same uh, acquisition date. so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this is what motivated us to uh, push in the neural radiance fields uh, domain. Okay, excellent.
0: So as far as I know, there's two at least two new uh, techniques that you've developed: uh, SATNERV and EONerve. Can we go over how it relates to the previous work and what kind of uh, um, what kind of advancements have been introduced as part of these uh, pipelines?
2: Yeah, so uh, I will first cover a little bit the the story of uh, <coughs> this uh, evolution from Shadow Nerve to uh, EO or earth, obs- earth Observation Nerve, and then I yep. will maybe uh, focus more on uh, the specific uh, changes. Um, so, in contrast to uh, multi-view stereo, uh, classic multi-view stereo change, where uh, we have this uh, sequence of, of blocks. Uh, to treat uh, pairs of, of images independently and then just merge them at the end into a, a high, uh, highly accurate model. Um, all these uh, NERF uh, methods can be seen as a as a replacement of this uh, chain, where we model the the problem as a single optimization task. And uh, well, the main difference between uh, EO NERF and uh, the previous works is that uh, in previous works we were uh, working with data that was uh, strongly preprocessed and uh, where uh, we could rely on the input images uh, exhibiting uh, uh, radiometrically consistent colors apart from uh, shadows and 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 transient objects as as that were highlighted mm-hmm. and so uh- um,
0: yeah. I think at this point it's maybe nice to also mention what kind of uh, data sources have been used for these methods. I think that's something we haven't actually uh, described. So, how many images can we expect within a year and uh, why are they uh, pre-processed in one, one way or another? And maybe what kind of other sources would we consider? Maybe they're non-existent in this case.
2: Yeah, so... so uh, um in all these, uh, three, uh, methods for shadow nerve, satellite nerve, and your nerve, we were uh, working with, uh, images from the same, uh, constellation from uh, worldview, uh, three constellations. So that's images with, uh, 30 centimeters resolutions at the ground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they are, they are acquired, I think, in the span of one year or, uh, one year and a half, uh, about that. So, uh, we have uh, quite a variety of uh, uh, different sun positions and uh, different shadows across each input uh, sequence. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's images from the same uh, satellite. And mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the idea is that um, in the future, we can mix uh, different image sources and uh, obtain a similar or, or improve the, the accuracy. Okay,
0: interesting. So was the selection of WorldView uh like WorldView source uh, mainly motivated by using the same baseline between methods as a sort of introductory uh at a sort of introductory stage or was there another reason why WorldView is better than maybe other optical uh, sensors?
2: Well, WorldView is the the satellite with the highest uh commercial uh, resolution today. So uh that uh, gave us the the highest uh, input resolution to uh, really focus on the on the resolution of the the output model. So we really cared about details and and having a uh, a very accurate altitude uh, estimate at the at the end of the, of the okay. Presentation.
0: So in this case, like the, the the main motivation is the high thirty centimeter resolution of of the footage that we get from the world view. But in principle, it could be used for other sensors as well, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, okay. maybe, okay. uh,
1: maybe I can answer a little bit here as well. Sorry, Sorry guys. Yeah, uh, no, jump, jump in, no <laughs> problem. Because I was the one who chose the WorldView data set. <laughs> uh, the main motivation for me was that it. Uh, we also had a ground truth, lighter uh, observation over oh, a bunch nice. of different scenes, maybe 70, 60 or 70 scenes, uh, which were actually designed for the competition, uh, the Data Fusion competition in 2019. So okay. the, the coexistence of a big data set of multi, multi-view images and also a ground truth of the 3D geometry were really what motivated me to use that data set. But actually, okay. I was downsampling the images of a factor of two, so down to 60 centimeters resolution, um, mm-hmm. which is actually compatible with other satellite data sources like Pleiades, for example, uh, which is uh, 70 centimeters resolution. Okay. So for me, the main motivation wasn't actually the the resolution, but the existence of the data set and the presence of the LiDAR ground truth.
0: Okay, that's a great point. So there's also this uh, confidence that we can get about the height estimation and the 3D representation that we get from these methods. Okay.
2: Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, basically, uh, I will just uh, go over the the differences uh, mm-hmm. between the shadow nerve, satellite nerve and uh, the Earth observation nerve. So uh, in uh, our previous work, uh, satellite nerve, we extended uh, the shadow nerve uh, by the incorporation of transient objects, which were not uh, explicitly modeled in uh, shadow nerve. Uh, we also uh, introduced uh, the direct use of RPC uh, functions, which are the actual camera model that is provided with uh, satellite images instead of uh, approximative uh, pinhole cameras. And uh, we added, we explored, let's say, uh, sparse step uh, supervision to, to add a little bit more of uh, regularity uh, into the uh, output surface. And then we also experimented on the side of what happens if uh, the input camera functions uh, are less or more uh, consistent. And uh, we saw that this is actually a key issue for uh, optimizing uh, the neural radiance field because you really need that each ray that you are casting in the uh, 3D space is uh, consistent with the rays that you are uh, casting from uh, the other cameras. And so these were mainly the the changes that uh, uh, we introduced in the Satellite NERF, and that uh, helped us to reach, uh, uh, let's say, uh, more uh, consistent altitude estimates with respect to uh, Shadow NERF. And um, the thing was that even if uh, these output models were, the output models generated with Satellite NERF were already promising, and we could see a lot of uh, detail, let say, in the contour of uh, buildings or uh, in trees, uh, overall, the the altitude accuracy was still uh, below the um, last generation uh, stereo matching uh, networks that can be used for disparity estimation and then you triangulate and you obtain the the altitude. And um, that was mainly because uh, the neural radiance field introduced a lot of uh, local irregularity. Uh, of course, the color was the color between the images uh, was. Uh, more or less consistent, the images were more or less uh, radiometrically normalized, but still, this kind of local variation introduces a lot of uh, of uh, altitude uh, irregularity. This uh, we tried to address this into the the more recent uh, model uh, Earth Observation Nerv by uh, constraining a little bit more the problem, uh, that is. Um, Differently from Satellite and Shadow nerve, where uh, in Satellite nerf we simply took the radiance model that uh, DAWA introduced previously. And so we kept exactly the same formulation for uh, the sky color, uh, shadows, etc. In uh, EO NERF, uh we changed the way that uh, shadows are handled. And instead of predicting shadows as a color property of uh, the image, so we are not trying to just paint. The shadows, let's say, into the input image. Uh, we force that these uh, shadows are rendered from the geometry. So, uh, let's say uh, this changes the the way uh, the shadows are incorporated into the final uh, rendering. And so, in a way, the only uh, manner that the network can use, the only strategy that the network can use to uh, render the accurate shadows, is to uh, have the good geometry.
0: Okay. So, in some sense, you're kind of constraining the space of solutions for the for the shadows that are modeled in the representation? Exactly. By right. constraining them, to, the shadows must be cast by objects, that by physical objects that are in the scene and they cannot be cast without an object that casts them. Is that correct? Exactly.
2: exactly. So that's okay. basically done by uh, casting uh, rays from each camera. And then once we uh, find the point that is more likely to uh, belong to the output uh, surface, we cast another ray uh, into the sun. And then we can, uh, let's say, visit the different uh, volume density estimates across the point of this uh, secondary ray that goes into the sun. And then this uh, volume uh, density at these points, at the last point, actually, is indicative of the visibility of the of the point, and therefore can be used to represent the shadow in the output rendering. Okay, excellent. So I think
0: at this point it uh, would be maybe good to show some results. I don't know if you have comparisons between different methods, but I saw some really nice visualizations.
2: Sure. So uh, this uh, this way of rendering shadow was a was a changing uh, uh, factor for us, and uh, it helped. To reach a state-of-the-art altitude accuracy, which can actually uh, today compete with uh, the la- latest generation uh, stereo matching uh, networks. So, in this uh, in this image, I am showing uh, one input image used to to train both your uh, and satellite NERF, One image of the set of uh, twenty that were used for the for the optimization, and. Um, you can see the output altitude uh, prediction. Uh, we can see that the satellite NERF uh, prediction is very noisy, but that is because uh, satellite NERF, again, relies on some uh, assumptions on the pre-processing of the data, which are uh, uh, removed in the in the EO NERF uh, model. We introduced some uh, Auxiliary variables to model, let's say, uh, global color biases from uh, one input image to the other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so this helps uh, also removing a lot of noise. And uh, well, I can maybe show the videos with um, where we can appreciate this uh, accuracy in, uh, in altitude and um, the decomposition of the scene into different uh, properties so here you can see uh, a small preview of four of the four uh, subset four view subset of the of the input uh, collection that was used to train the network then you can see the radiometric uh, decomposition of the scene that is uh, performed by ioner so um, we have we distinguish between the albedo or the intrinsic color of the surface uh, then we can uh, add shadows um, we can also perform this kind of global, uh, color, uh, transformation from one image to the other. And we can also mm-hmm. model the transient objects. So the way transient objects are modeled, I did not go into the details, but it's, uh, well, we took inspiration from, uh, Nerf in the Wild, which you handles multi-date images, uh, as well. In this case, uh, street view images and, um, yeah, we... For the transient objects, we just actually predict them as a color property of the scene. So, uh, okay. that's different from the way that we handle uh, yeah. shadows at this at this uh, stage. Okay. And then in the altitude, we can see that indeed we managed to obtain these uh, very irregular and thin structures. So, this is a, a, a thematic park in uh, Argentina, I think, and we can manage to obtain these roller coasters, this sort of uh, large arch, the uh, tubogan here. So uh, yeah, we we see a lot of in potential in this kind of uh, output uh, 3D models. OK,
0: excellent. These are great results, so uh, I'm really happy that we can look at some
2: of these renderings. This is another example kind of in another area of interest. So you can see that, uh, for instance, cars that are parked in the rooftop of uh, these uh, buildings, we can just remove and add them at uh, arbitrarily, the same with shadows. And uh, that's a third example. Mm-hmm. And uh, for instance, here, uh, I wanted to show, again, uh, this is, let's say, very fascinating uh, aspect of neural radiance fields where we can arbitrarily control, uh, uh, let's say, arbitrarily uh, render novel views, as, as shadow Dawa sh- uh, was mentioning. And uh, of course, not only we can control the, the point of view now, we, like in this Eonerf model, we can also uh, get very uh, realistic results by changing the shadow direction. In this case, I am show- showing. Non-realistic shadows because, as you know, the sun does not uh, move uh, circularly above our uh, our head. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, even though if we put this, let's say, if we input these unrealistic sun directions to the uh, neural network, we manage to obtain very realistic results. Let's say, even in building facades, uh, etc. So. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm absolutely. Right. Like the, technically from the perspective of the method, we're just modeling sun as a light source, right? So it just exactly. could be a very large light bulb or something exactly. flying in the air. Uh, excellent. Um do you have any comparisons for uh, the development between the developed methods and the uh, more traditional pipelines?
2: Yes. So uh here in uh, in this slide, I'm showing uh a comparison of the uh, surface models that uh, we obtain with uh, EO-NERF on one side. Uh, Then in the center, you can see the result using a a stereo pipeline with 10 input uh, image pairs that are merged into a single uh, surface model. And uh, in this uh, middle result, we use the classic correlator, which is a variant of the semi-global matching algorithm which is very popular for satellite images. And then in the very last uh, column, you can see the same result using a, a deep learning uh, correlator, the pyramid stereo matching networks. And uh, what is interesting of this comparison is that the stereo correlators, they produce very regular results. Actually, you will see that the ground is is very regular. So uh, this helps a lot minimizing the error, but they lose uh, the geometry of uh details so the roller coasters of the area are gone the arch is uh gone and uh, these are the kind of details that we managed to uh get back in uh the earth observation nerve and for reference uh at your uh, left you can see the lidar uh digital surface model which of course is the one <laughs> exhibiting more detail okay
0: excellent um, so I think at this point, we can move on to the very last uh, segment before we join a short discussion. Thank you very much, Koša. These are excellent results. and Thank you. It seems like we've been able to cover almost the entire timeline of NeRF applied for EO. Uh, so uh, UGL's work is a bit perpendicular to NeRF, but we're still thinking of learning uh, 3D representations that. Uh, are learned, at least in part, from satellite images. And in this case we'll be discussing the link between um, satellite images and street view footage. Um, So there's two big themes uh, I think that we want to cover, and we'll start with the first one, which is um, localization. But first I want to ask a more general question uh, to you, Yuchiao namely what motivated to the works that link the satellite images and street view and uh, there's a few use cases that you've shown in your research works Uh, but what were the uh, the initial uh, inspirations for this whole line of work?
3: Yeah okay so my motivation uh, starts from autonomous driving so currently autonomous driving using uh, high-definition maps or 3D LIDAR to first build a 3D map of the scene and then use this for vehicle localization. However, the 3D model of the scene is very expensive. In the contrast, a uh, satellite image also provides reference for vehicle locations when driving on the road, and it is very memory-efficient and um, relatively cheaper than the 3D models. Yeah, that's we want to use satellite images for vehicle localization.
0: Okay, great. So I think th- for this first segment, we can do exactly that. Go mm-hmm. over localization. So uh, mm-hmm. can you can you outline the uh, the technical problem of localization, and then maybe uh, cover the yeah. the works that you've done on the topic.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, let's first take a look at the localization task. Uh, Given an image captured at the ground level, usually by a, a handheld camera or vehicle-mounted camera, how can we look like where this camera is uh, by, u- by using a satellite image? Yeah, we have a pre-downloaded satellite image covering the city and we want to look like where we are. So this task is usually formulated as an image retrieval. We first split the large city-scale satellite map to small patches uh, covering the whole city. And then we have a database, uh, each reference image have a GPS tag associated with it. And then uh, given a ground image captured at the ground level, we uh, compare its similarity with every database reference satellite image and retrieve the most similar one. The GPS of the most similar satellite image is approximated as a query camera location. As we can see, it is an image retrieval problem, so it is usually solved by deep metric learning techniques. Namely, we use two branch CNNs to extract deep features from the two view image separately, and then we train the neural network by a contrastive learning or triplet loss by uh, maximizing the similarity between uh, matching ground and satellite image peers while minimizing the similarity between non-matching cross-view image peers. Once the network has been trained, we use the expected global descriptors by the network and compute the similarity between a query image and reference satellite image and retrieve the most similar one. This is the overall idea of how to solve this task. However, this task Uh, contains similarity matching between cross view images. Uh, Due to the significant viewpoint changes, uh, we have a lot of challenges such as significant domain differences uh, and the unknown orientation and limited field of view of the ground cameras, and also the image retrieval formulation uh, has limited localization accuracy. Yeah. So
0: can sure. I ask about this uh, this basic solution you've just outlined? So was that a baseline that you've produced in the very beginning where you just uh, did like a deep metric learning? Is that something that worked reasonably well?
3: No, we, we can't say it works already well. Uh, we can just say uh, this provides a method and it sometimes works or it provides some um, performance, but it's far from practical localization accuracy. Okay.
0: Okay, interesting. And then there's these three challenges that are associated with this approach, right?
3: Yes. Yeah, we want to explicitly solve the three challenges instead of blindly, brute force, train a neural network to improve the performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. Um, let me go with the solutions. So first, let's talk about how to bridge the cross-view domain differences. So in this slide, I show a ground-level panorama and a satellite image. Can we estimate they are from the same place? Uh, firstly, let's use the two red arrows to denote, uh, denote the aligned orientations of the ground-view image and the satellite image. From the ground-view image, we can see along the zero direction, there is a tree. And correspondingly, we can also observe a tree on a satellite image along the uh, same direction. And when we rotate our head to positive 90 degree and negative 90 degree, we can see there are zo- roads on the ground view panorama and correspondingly, we can also find road on the satellite image. When we continue looking at other thing objects, we may also find correspondences of the small white roads in the two view images. Yeah, this information can help us to bridge the cross view, correspond- uh, cross view differences and make the network easier to learn their similarity. So firstly, we introduce an optimal feature transport module to map features from one domain to another. So this is a a learned feature maps from the ground image and the satellite image just by CNNs. We can see they are different. However, they correspond to the same scene part, the road part. Yeah. By using Mm -hmm. this feature transport layer, we can map the ground features to the satellite domain. And after this mapping, they are similar. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. one way, the first way for bridging the cross-view domain differences by a learning based method. The other one is uh, a parameter free, a learnable parameter free method. So let's continue in looking at the correspondences between the two views. We find that a circle on the satellite image approximately corresponds to a horizontal line on the ground view panorama. It corresponds to the azimuth direction. And the inner circle corresponds to the bottom line of the panorama, and a an outer circle corresponds to the upper line of the panorama. So uh, inspired by this, we propose a polar transform by unrolling and stretching the concentric circles on a satellite image to straight lines on the ground view panorama, and this is a polar transform satellite image. We can see that after transform, they are roughly aligned at the same viewpoint. By using this polar transform as a pre-processing, we can ease the burden of neural networks. After pre-processing satellite image by polar transform, we uh, apply deep networks to extract features. Yeah, this is our second way for bridging the cross view correspondences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to move on to the second challenge, and orientation and limited field of view.
0: OK. But just to reiterate for yeah. the audience, uh, so mm-hmm. with these methods, we are looking for various ways of learning some sort of similarity with maybe additional tricks or additional um, ideas to kind of uh, to represent the differences in the domain and the views between the two sources. But as opposed to Nerf, we're not learning one network per uh, per sort of uh, location. We're learning a network that will actually allow us to work in a variety of locations and localize based on Street View footage. Is that correct?
3: Yes, right. Yeah, we want to train a model that can be generally applied at any place.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, uh, what was the second challenge that was uh, addressed?
3: An uh, of the ground-view image and limited field of view. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So, in this slide, I present a satellite image and two ground-view panorama captured at the same location, the center of the satellite image, but different orientation, different facing direction. We can see the two ground-view images are different at our first glance. Yeah, when we further restrict the field of view of the ground cameras, the captured content can be totally different with each other. Yeah, how can we learn features from the two totally different scenes and match them to the same satellite image? Yeah, this is what we are going to address next. Recall that we have a polar transform that maps satellite image to a ground-view panorama coordinates, with its horizontal lines corresponds to the azimuth direction. And the horizontal line of the ground-view image also corresponds to the azimuth direction. Thus, we can estimate their relative orientation by a special correlation uh, between the ground-view feature and the satellite feature along the horizontal direction. This correlation produces a similarity score at each uh, orientation angle, um, denoted by this red curve. And the position, or the orientation, corresponds to the maximum similarity value, corresponds to the potential orientation alignment between the ground-view image and the satellite image. In this way, we can estimate the relative orientation, And when the ground camera has a limited field of view, we can crop corresponding parts. Corresponding part from the satellite features is here, the satellite features, and use the cropped part for similarity matching. Yeah, in this way, we can handle the limited field of view of ground cameras. Uh, Here is a localization result, uh, joint location and orientation estimation by cross-view image matching. For the query image, Images. We not only retrieve the most similar satellite image from the database, but also estimate a relative orientation between the ground image and the satellite image. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. effectively, we're here. We're addressing the problem that, well, first of all, uh, our location could be pretty much anywhere in the satellite image, but also our 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 view might be completely rotated and at any random angle. So we're effectively yeah. trying to solve two kind of estimations at the same time in some sense. Yeah, right. Okay, excellent. And what about the last challenge that was addressed? uh...
3: Yeah, Uh, the last challenge is about the limited localization accuracy by image retrieval. So image retrieval can retrieve the most similar satellite image for the query image. Uh, However, the ground camera can be at any location on the retrieved satellite image, so there is an ambiguous. How to increase this localization accuracy? We address this problem by estimating the relative rotation and translation between the ground image and the satellite image center. The relative translation is uh, with respect to the satellite image center. Yeah. So we formulate this task as a deep optimization problem Specifically, given an initial rotation translation of the ground camera, uh, we project satellite image, satellite deep features to the ground viewpoint according to this relative pose. And we construct a uh, optimization difference or optimization objective, which is the differences between the predicted features from the satellite image and the observed features uh, from the ground view image. And then we can employ an LM optimization to optimize the pose parameter to make the feature differences minimized. Yeah, this is the overall idea. So here uh, we show some results. The red dot and arrow denote the initial pose, initial location, and the orientation of the ground camera. Uh, By using our deep optimization techniques, uh, the pose Uh, update is denoted by the purple dots. And until the final predicted uh, green dot and arrow is a final predicted location and uh, and orientation, and the blue dot and arrow denotes a ground truth location and orientation. Yeah, this is for uh, deep optimization techniques. And this is the first work in the community to address this problem. However, deep optimization sometimes suffer from local minima. We want to further improve the performance. So, in our uh, latest ICCV work, we decouple the rotation and translation um, by two steps. Firstly, we estimate rotation by a neural post optimizer, and then we estimate the translation by a, a dense search mechanism. Yeah, so. Both the works, both the modules, rotation estimation and translation estimation, requires an overhead view feature synthesis module, which aims to synthesize an overhead view feature map or BEV feature map from the ground view image according to a relative pose. Yeah. Here, I just want to say decoupling is a better solution for the location estimation, and also in this localization framework, we requires an overhead view feature synthesis module. In this new work. We uh, given a ground-view image, we not only estimate an uh, uh, orientation uh, in uh, this triangle, yellow triangle, denotes a predicted location and uh, the the arrow denotes that orientation. And we also produce a probability map, location probability map of the ground-view camera with respect to the satellite image. So by using this location probability map, this satellite image based localization technique can be fused with other localization techniques like slime or uh, 3d structure based localization yeah, to uh, achieve all around localization performance yeah mm-hmm.
0: okay excellent uh, um so i think uh, at this point we might move to the synthesis soon but in summary there's a few challenges mm-hmm. that uh mm-hmm. That had to be addressed here with uh, building a better understanding of the, at least implicitly, the 3D structure of the environment that effectively allows us to, uh, based only based on street view images, to precisely estimate the poles and uh, and location within the within a satellite image. Um, now that that all looks great, so I think at this point uh, it would be nice to at least. I covered the syn- synthetic aspect, uh, which I think was addressed in one of your um, one of your uh, works as well. So, for the work on synthesizing street view images, can you tell us what inspired that work and what potential applications or at least findings uh, you you were looking for in in that line of work?
3: Except for the uh, augmented rela- reality or virtual reality. It's a well-known application of the cross-view synthesis. I also want the cross-view synthesis to assist the cross-view localization task, because as we have discussed, many of my works need a cross-view synthesis, mm-hmm. ground-to-satellite or satellite-to-ground-view synthesis. Yeah, when the synthesis work is perfect, it will uh, significantly facilitate the localization performance. Yeah, that's my motivation for this task. So here is a satellite image. In this work, we want to synthesize a street view panorama given a pose, uh, a pixel location of the ground view uh, camera. Yeah. So here is an example of the the corresponding street view image at this point. So before this task, we need to understand the correspondences between the two views yeah so in this task because the satellite camera is very far away from the earth we approximate the satellite image projection as a parallel projection Uh, namely it takes um, points at the same special location but different heights to the same pixel uh, on a satellite image Uh, a street view panorama usually has an equirectangular projection the horizontal axis corresponds to the azimuth angle, and the vertical axis corresponds to the pitch angle. Mm -hmm. When the 3D scene model is available, I mean the height, the XYZ coordinate of the scene is available, and it is both visible in the two views. There is a deterministic mapping between the two view images. However, most cases, we don't have the 3D model of the scene. We only have a satellite image. How can we implicitly recover the 3D scene? Uh, In this work, we present multi-height plan image representation. Specifically, we represent the scene by a set of uh, images parallel to the ground plan, but at different heights. And each plan includes an RGB channel, and a density channel, alpha channel. This representation is actually motivated by the uh, multi image from the conventional normal view synthesis problem. So uh, this is a representation. Next, I'm going to introduce how we can use this for cross-view synthesis. Uh, Given a satellite image, we first estimate a height probability distribution of the satellite image across different heights and then we can use the satellite image and the height probability distribution to construct this overhead view MPI. Uh, the density value for each plan uh, corresponds to the height density uh, and the RGB channel is set to the satellite image. From this overhead view MPI, we then convert it to uh, cylinders uh, in, in the same word coordinate, cylinders. Yeah, So we call it a cylinder MPI. And then we can uh, unroll and stretch each cylinder to an image in the Street View MPI. In this way, we can sort the image in the Street View MPI from near to far. By using this representation, we can synthesize the Street View image by a conventional alpha compositing. Yep.
0: the the last uh, the last three g mpi that's in different mm-hmm. coordinates right so there's a theta phi, and r different from the previous one right so it corresponds to the end of panorama mm-hmm. coordinates rather than kind of physical x y z is that correct
3: right 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 okay, yeah okay. yeah so we can see the five here horizontal corresponds to a uh, circle a circle uh yeah in this mm-hmm. cylinder. And uh, okay. the sit-
0: So, just if we were the- unwrapping the circle from the cylinder into something yeah. that we actually observe in Google Street View.
3: Yeah. Okay. right. Uh, this rendered image from Street View MPI can recover the geometry, the uh, ge- geometric configuration of the scene. For example, we can see there are two roads on a satellite image, and it can also observe in a Street View MPI. This is the first road, and this is the second road. But this rendered image lack of uh, appearance details of the real street view image. So next we will uh, use a generator, GAN, to hallucinate or feel the scene appearance details. So Mm -hmm. this is an overall architecture. Given a satellite image, we first estimate a high probability distribution uh, of it. And then we use the geometry projection module shown in the previous slides to render a street view image from the probability distribution and the satellite image. Um, conditioned on this rendered image, we then apply a generator to synthesize realistic street view images. The network is trained by uh, image reconstruction loss, um, yeah, or the perceptual loss, and a, a, a discriminator loss, the GAN loss to train the whole network. So here, we don't have explicit height supervision for the height probability distribution. Uh, Instead, its supervision implicitly comes from the image reconstruction loss. So here I show some uh, synthesized results. The second column shows the estimated height map of the satellite image. The whiter of the color, the higher of the object. Yeah, we can see the trees are higher than the grass, the ground plan. Mm-hmm.
0: Effectively, by propagating the air only from the final panorama, we are able to learn a high distribution that works well for modeling the problem. So as if we as if we were learning height yes. in a sort of emergent fashion, just by looking at what streets look like and what they should look like, and using this geometrical yeah. transformation. <laughs> Excellent. Hmm.
3: Yes, right. So, uh. We uh, first estimate height and use the height to render the street view image and uh, synthesize a realistic image. The ground truth is shown in the last column, yeah. If the height is estimated incorrectly and the project image will be incorrect uh, and uh, followed by the synthesized image. So this uh, difference, the error will be back propagated to the original of the network to fix the height. Uh, here is some additional visualizations of the estimated height maps. So here, uh, mostly I show the buildings. We can see the buildings are taller than the ground plan. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. height, um, height map. The quality of the height map is not really good, but uh, it's just uh, it is because of the impli- implicit supervision.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So here I show some results uh, uh, or ablation study of our method with or without height estimation. The second column show without height estimation. So in this ablation variant, uh, we only uh, use the ground plan to project satellite image to the ground view. Uh, so here we should, for example, there are trees, there are trees on a satellite image, but it cannot be recovered on the synthesized three-view image if there is no explicit height uh, estimation. Well, in our full method, the trees uh, can be correctly recovered. Um, Here is some comparison between previous um, brute force deep networks based uh, cross-view synthesis. By using the explicit geometry modeling, uh, the synthesized image contains more faithful geometry structures with respect to the ground view image. And even the line lines, we can recover it well. A, here is some visualizations of complex scenes. For those scenes, the brute force uh, normally hallucinate, hallucinate the appearance of the building facades. Uh, our method is still trying to hallucinate, but it is more faithful, more consistent with the ground truth image.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, there's there's this additional constraint that has to be that is basically hard-coded into the process where you first estimate the height and only then you generate use. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. This method differs itself from nerf-based method, is that uh, we want to train a model that can be generally applicable applicable to any satellite image. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also works with a sort of single satellite, right? you you have a single strategy and a single satellite. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I think at this point we can move on to the discussion. Um, yeah. so thank you, Jiao, and thank you to Dawa and Roger for presenting their work. These were, I think, really interesting and really diverse uh topics that we've covered. Um but the th- the common theme of learning 3D representations from satellite imagery in one way or another, I think, is uh, getting more and more attention these days. So, uh, I have a few uh, questions to start with. If you want to then carry on with any spontaneous discussions and whatnot, feel free to do so. Um, and if not, we can just follow the... Uh, what I've prepared. So I think what I'll start with is the bridge between NERF and uh UCL's work with street view footage, so there's these two sources of data: satellites data and in this case, uh, images from the ground. And each one of uh, these sources is constrained in some way. There's the satellite angle that that's only realistic for satellite sensors, and obviously with ground imagery, it's uh, there could be other limitations involved. So, I wanted to hear how uh, any of you feel about different sources of data for building um, 3D representations in Earth observation. Um, and doesn't have to be either of the two, but what your thoughts are about whether a satellite could be the best automated way of uh, making approximations about 3D, or maybe uh, we want to make use of some complementarity, or maybe there's something that's still not out there yet, really, but will be uh, more
2: promising. So I can mm-hmm. say a couple of words. Mm-hmm. But, um, so for sure, uh, mixing uh, images and different sorts of information is uh, it's on the table, and it will uh, play a uh, an important role in the in the future yeah. i don't know if uh, for instance in a in the neural uh, radiance field uh, framework uh, to what extent it uh, would be uh, harder or not to uh, mix uh, street view images and satellite images but uh, what we see is that uh, priors are uh, are priceless so uh, maybe uh, if uh, using them simultaneously is uh, is a it's a harder task. Maybe you can uh, get some prior, uh, for instance, on the facades or, or stuff that uh, you don't see in the satellite images from the street views or uh, vice versa. And then you can plug that into into the, the problem. I think that's kind of in line with uh, the work of UGO, uh With uh, obtaining a first ahead estimate and then uh, you see uh, the the impact that this has on the on the synthesis for uh, street view, so maybe that uh, height uh, estimate uh, would be uh, obtained uh, in a different way, and uh, and so uh, in a way that boosts the the final uh, synthesis. Mm-hmm. Mm,
3: yes. I think uh, what Roger says is very great. And also I'm amazed by the 3D reconstruction results by the satellite image related NERFs, yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I agree that building the 3D model, establish the 3D model using ground view image and the satellite image will be very challenging. So I, th- this makes me actually think of the Drone view image. If we have a UAV and flying through the city, we may have an intermediate view between the street view and satellite view. Maybe this can help us cover recover more faithfully of the scene.
1: I would even maybe go even further and say, why not all three, right? Um, uh-huh. And actually to, to bounce a bit back on, on your question, uh, Miko, it's it was actually a article, well not a scientific article but a news article that Google published mm-hmm. quite recently uh mm-hmm. sort of teasing the future of uh, Street view, which we now know uh, might be in the future something that could combine uh, Street view images and satellite or and or drone images as well. To mm-hmm. sort mm-hmm. of allow you really a uh, very immersive uh, fly through of the cities. Uh, this is actually something that I think we can expect in the coming years. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely a trend towards which we're we're going. And I mean, if Google says it's going to happen, it's definitely going to happen, right? Yeah. Maybe it's definitely. already happened. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Maybe>. <laughs>
1: For all we know. Um, and yeah, I think that also uh, in in your in the context of your work, uh, Yuja, which is also extremely interesting. Um, I think you could benefit probably from uh, using pairs of satellite images instead of single satellite images to get a more uh, accurate uh, representation. I strongly
3: agree. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's actually a bit related to
0: my next question. So I'm just going to put it out there. There's I'd say like there's at least two paths uh, for like. At least two distinct paths for building like 3D understanding from Earth observation data. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like the more conventional ways are often focused on the sensors. And like, you try to elevate what sensor allows you to do in a fairly uh, simple or predictable setting. And obviously, with the rise of deep learning, we have more and more data based, data driven. Uh, frameworks where we just extract priors from large sets of data, whether it's for a single location or not, there's always this approach where we can maybe make some additional links and learn some additional tricks uh, within uh, the structure of our data, rather that allows us to maybe use sensors that don't do as well and learn something quite new. Um, so that's what I was going to ask, is uh, what do you feel like there's, like, this is the way, the data-driven approach, or whether there's some developments that you maybe uh, hope for within the kind of hardware side on how we can acquire data, or maybe how many images we can acquire, or maybe for satellite, maybe there's an increased temporal uh, frequency or anything else that you think could help from the sort of sensing uh, domain, or whether data is enough. Or
2: more of it. So, I I will uh, jump in if uh, you mm-hmm. don't mind, because like as you say, uh, data is of course uh, fundamental for uh, deep learning uh, methodologies. But uh, I would like to uh, just precise that in the in the neural radiance field uh, works, uh, we what I really appreciate is that we are kind of uh free from uh overall uh priors, like priors extracted from uh, large data sets. Okay. And I think that is key to uh retain these kind of fine structures and uh really overfit the uh geometry of each uh single scene uh independently. So um uh of course priors and, and uh generalization across the scenes is uh Desirable, but uh, but that is one uh, specificity of uh, neural radiance fields that I really uh, uh, appreciate. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, the data, of course, uh, the amount of data is will will continue playing a, an important role. We are we are seeing all this uh, boom of uh, imagery that is growing and growing with more missions being launched uh, every year. Um, but um, in the end, I think that the methods will have to evolve also to adapt to uh, just working with uh, very few images. Like in the end, uh, even if we are uh, in this uh, increasing phase of of, uh, of imagery, um, we need to stick back to the case. Uh, I think the, the traditional uh, stereo case or uh, single images as usual, uh, 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 was uh, presenting. Um, because well, in the end, the data is it costs. So uh, uh, yeah, that's that's something to to keep in mind as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and data also it's only valid for a certain amount of time until the building is reconstructed and the trees have grown and and the road has been destroyed. So there's also that aspect uh, where we can acquire a bunch of images, but eventually they sort of go out of date. Um, but I definitely think that, to, to sort of bounce on what you were saying there, Roger, that you uh, what, what is also really interesting about these radiance field methods is that um, they, it could be possible to consider uh, scenarios where we have different satellites with different sensor resolutions, spectral bands, all kinds of different properties of the sensor. Um, and we can actually fuse all this information together. Uh, in one big model, so it could also be, yeah, drone images, streetcar images, but also completely different types of sensors like lidar, like radar, like uh, all kinds of different things um, can actually enter into this radiance field or at least neural field uh, framework, which traditionally with hystereo approaches wasn't really possible, and nobody really thought of doing it that way either. So mm-hmm. as long as we can acquire a lot of different data within a very limited time frame, so the scene hasn't changed too much. I think that there is actually a path forward of uh, using a variety of different sensors. And this actually corresponds to a case of emergency situations um, where you have, for example, the disaster charter, the International Disaster Charter, when there's a very large catastrophe somewhere in the world uh, impacting a huge amount of human lives. Then it's uh, all of the different satellites kind of turn their eyes towards this one area and take a bunch of pictures. But all these pictures are completely different. So it really, today, it really requires a human interpreter uh, to come along and say, oh, I can see in this picture and this picture. But if we want to automate all this um, and make it uh, viable in an operational setting in order to really send as quickly as possible the people who need to be there at the right place and at the right time and extract all the uh, relevant information, we need a method that's also able to, you know, account for all these differences in the different sensors um, and also to produce something in a rapid time frame so these are really the the constraints and this is also really something that drives uh, the development of the i think the the radiance field or at least the neural neural fields methods
3: yeah, uh, although I do some work on uh, my purpose is to use one model to applicable for different kind of things. But uh, I think from the accuracy perspective, if a model is just focusing on one thing, the accuracy will be more uh, great. Yeah. Um, also, I have some inspirations from the recent large language models. The underlying idea is that As long as we have enough data, we don't need any specific design for the model. The model can directly memorize all kinds of uh, data and implicitly learn the relationships. It's naturally generalizable to different kinds of things. So maybe in one day or the future, we have enough of the data and we can use one model suitable for all kinds of tasks. Just imaginary. (laughs)
0: Well, our satellites are working hard uh, acquiring <laughs> the data
2: day and night. Uh, hopefully, one day, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I, I think that that's a just a, that that would be very appealing to have like a Earth <laughs> observa- observation uh, GPT where you can uh, plug no matter what uh, kind of input information, and then you ask for a three D estimate, and then you get uh, <laughs> a result. We, so yeah. uh, that's the. <laughs> It's difficult. One day. Maybe one day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, I think my next question has to do with something that Dawa said, like things getting out of date. So with several approaches we discussed today, we were adding more dimensions. Like we want to build some 3D understanding, but there's other things that happen to the environment we observe. There's shadows that we can all build one day on, well, or another. There's transient objects. Like, where does it end? So like well, how do you feel? Like is three D enough? Is there some other like crucial dimensions we want to model? Is it temporal dimension? Is it something else? Is three D something you feel like we stick to for a long time? And if yes, then why? Are are all the other dimensions sort of additions that we can uh, kind of add to our solutions, or do you feel like we're still kind of missing something in terms of how we think about? The environment we model. If we model time, then things don't get out, get out of date. But there's other things that can happen, there's location and so on. Um, I want to hear uh, what you think, like how you, th- what kind of dimensionality of representations you feel should be appropriate for the next, let's say, 10 years with the data that we currently have.
1: I, mean, I definitely think that time is a very interesting direction to go. I mean, you could. Think about modeling the way that vegetation grows, the vegetation cycles, to, you know. So you have some slow changes and you have very sudden changes like maybe cutting down a tree or destroying a building and rebuilding something else. Um, and then you have these sort of transient changes like a car is in one image, but it's not in all the others. So you have a lot of these different phenomena uh, that depend on time in a different way. So accounting for those within a neural implicit neural Method isn't just plugging a t variable into the input. It's not, unfortunately, it's not that easy. We wish it was, but uh, as uh, Roger probably uh, knows as well, it's it's not not quite that simple. Um, but it would definitely be extremely appealing to go towards that direction. Mm-hmm. We also saw uh, within the Nerf community a lot of works on dynamic Nerfs and applying Nerfs to time varying scenes. So one scenario that I could imagine for that would be uh, trying to model. Um, after a forest fire, the direction of the smoke, um, because smoke is inherently something that's dynamic. And so we have these drone acquisitions above such a smoke. So this would be, for example, one very down to earth uh, use case for taking into account time as a fundamental part of an implicit neural model. Mm-hmm. And besides time, different dimensionalities that could also enter into account, I think that the um, wavelength of light actually would be a very interesting one to go for. Because right now, and all of the work that we've been talking about today, uh, Roger's work, Yuja's work, and mine, we all use RGB. But actually, our sensors from space are able to sense infrared, but also a bunch of other wavelengths as well. Um, And even we can push it so far as having hyperspectral uh, sensors which measure maybe 200 uh, or 300 different wavelengths so this is another fundamental dimensionality of our reality that uh, for the moment we don't re- we, nobody has really gone towards that yet that could be an interesting research direction yeah, you could
0: potentially action. take that further by expanding to like both active and passing sensing modalities so maybe we can also model things that are active like SAR and have a kind of uh, more uh, general model that kind of models whether we transmit EM waves in one way or another, or just receive from the sun or whatever the sensor, like whatever the source is.
1: Some um, publications about that topic might be coming out soon.
0: Okay,
2: <laughs> we'll hold our breaths. Um, yeah, any? I would huh? like to to add on that because I think, of course, that yeah changes. Uh, might be as interesting as uh 3d like uh 3d change uh, detection uh might be even uh, more informative in, in certain scenarios with respect to absolute uh, 3d uh estimates um but also i think that the semantic uh information will play uh, uh an important role on this uh uh 3d representations of the of the scene like now we we saw some works that do kind of uh uh, decoupling of the scene into uh, some basic uh, properties like shadows, uh, uh, surface color, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in the end, adding some uh, semantics, uh, more of uh, instant segmentation uh, kinds, or, or even semantics of change detection, as I was mentioning, like uh, slow uh, changes, uh, natural changes, uh, human uh, uh, driven uh, changes like having this sort of uh, classification and and being able to extract it automatically that that would be very meaningful in the in the coming uh, years yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very great ideas. I just thought of another application scenario for modeling along the time. Uh, so David mentioned about smoke detection. Yeah, so earlier smoke detection at an earlier stage may help prevent disasters like fire and also um, modeling along the time dimension may help disaster discovery. Um, yes, something related. Yeah, that would be very mm-hmm. important.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I feel like obviously there's a there's a bridge between like having enough data for adding all these additional cons- dimensions <laughs> and phenomena we model, but hopefully with enough data, uh, mm-hmm. one day we'll be able to expand the beyond three uh, D representations. Um, Okay. I think I have one more uh, kind of uh, free question, and this would be something of a wish list. If you think about the data you work with uh, so far, do you have any ideas, like any... Um, any features that you would like to see in the data that's being acquired for f-observations, whether it's, again, the frequency of acquisition, the bands, the resolution, what's, what, what's your experience with acquiring the data? Also, maybe with uh, related to the way we distribute data, so it could be anything from sense the way we sense and also the way we distribute and we build data sets or maybe some other catalogs of data. In general, what would you like to see in the next couple of years if you uh, to, to support your research uh, with 3D understanding of health?
2: So, in, in my case, I would like to see more, uh, probably more data sets about, uh, uh, let's say, so. Right now we have many uh, data sets with, let's say a bunch of images. And then uh, like the we have, as in the case of uh, the words that we discussed, we have like this uh, ground truth, uh, which is acquired at one date. But what I would like to see more uh, coming up in the future is like these sequences of images, multi-date images. And then uh, if I could follow as well, uh, the ground truth evolution let's let's say uh, multi date uh, geometry uh, uh, ground truth uh, benchmarks mm-hmm. that would be that would be great actually for for like as we were mentioning earlier 3d uh, change detection uh, i think that would really uh, open mm-hmm. up a lot of possibilities it's something that uh, right now i don't think it's well you can use simulated data but not with uh, real world uh, data mm-hmm. so maybe uh, if I had, if I could, I would add this wish in the, in the okay. wish list. We have the
1: first item on the wish list. Anything else? Yeah, on my side, I would really like to see a lot more open data. i uh, sorry for all the commercial data producers and for all the shareholders. Uh, if you're not making uh, your, your holidays this year to the Caribbean, but uh, seriously for research, it's extremely important. And now we're actually going in the opposite direction with worldview data, because when they released it for the 2019 uh, data fusion competition, they agreed to acquire 20 images or or something like that over this, uh, over these cities, which, and then to distribute them freely and openly for anyone to be able to work on. This is amazing. This really... Pushes research, but not just one or two years for five or 10 years. Now we have a benchmark of data that that's that's amazing. Um, and now we saw that with the new licenses of worldview data, we're no longer allowed to use worldview data for research. This for me is a huge problem. And if I want to start applying the same method to larger and larger data sets, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. So for me, I would say, please to all the commercial data providers, don't stop doing challenges. Don't stop. Releasing at least some of the data to the public. It's good advertising for you. Uh, it's great for research and it's it's just great for everyone uh, overall for the for the public cause for the public domain. Um, I really appreciate the ESA will um, to, for example, make Sentinel 2 uh absolutely public and free data source for absolutely anyone to work on. That was what also spurred my PhD research. So yeah, that's my element of the of the wish list uh, please make it open. Please make it free and please make the licenses permissive enough for us to do research. Mm -hmm. Okay, second item down the list. I'm signing with my both hands. Anything else?
3: Yeah, uh, I have the same wish. And apart from that, I so from the autonomous driving perspective, I expect a data set that contains Multi view satellite images, just as satellite nerve, shadow nerve, something like that, and also paired with ground view images. And we know the relative poses. Yeah, that would be a very valuable data set um, and also to facilitate the autonomous driving with satellite imagery. Yeah, that would be great.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I'll make sure to put it out mm-hmm. there the, the wish list hopefully some of the wishes come true uh i think uh for the i, th- I think we're uh, getting close to wrapping things up um in in case you want to highlight your future work what you're currently working on uh whether it's something that uh we should keep an eye on this is the time to
1: uh, make any uh, announcements. So maybe I'll start on that because on our side, the main wish I, I would say that we have two, two or three elements on our Nerf wish list as well, which we're going mm-hmm. to try to oh. be working on on the in the past, in the next three, five, hopefully more years. Um, and one of those is to try to get a method that works with fewer images, because in reality, we often for the most part of the world, we have only access to two or three images. So this is already um, was already addressed by a very good paper called SPS-NERF, which I think won the best paper award this year, uh, work by Lulin Zhang, I'm sorry if I'm saying the name wrong, and uh, Evelina Rupnik from um, the French uh, IGN. So th- this kind of work uh, is definitely direction that we're going to try to take. And the second one, I would say, is uh, scalability trying to make NERFs that are faster, that uh, generalize to new scenes uh, without having to retrain an entire neural network from scratch, maybe just training on a few iterations. So that kind of direction of scalability, trying to make NERFs applicable to larger and larger areas, I would say that's the that's the essence of, of uh, what we're trying to go towards now, because that's also the main limitation and the main criticism that I receive uh, on a daily basis. <laughs>
2: well i can, i can only share uh, your thoughts on this uh, that one uh, yeah so uh, the first uh, subject that you mentioned is uh, one that uh, well i'm thinking a lot uh, currently and maybe uh, let's say in, the, in in the near future uh, hopefully we will have some some interesting results so uh, yeah
3: yeah So we are recently working on self-supervised or weakly supervised vehicle localization using a satellite image. That's because in a satellite image, you can usually get very accurate GPS location for each pixel. But for a vehicle mounted camera, it's not always the same case, you require RTK GPS. even RTK GPS may suffer uh, signal correction, signal absence. Yeah, so yeah, we are working on what if we only have noisy location on the ground view image? How can we accurately localize it using a satellite image? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that sounds exciting. Um, I think with this, we can wrap up. So, my dear guests, thank you for uh, coming to the show. It was, it has been a privilege to have you on and see some of your work, hear your thoughts and uh, discussions. Uh, I hope the audience has enjoyed this episode. Uh, and with this, I think we can sign off. Thank you. Thank you
1: thank very you. much. Thank you. Well.
0: thank you. So that's it. I hope this format will be found helpful and maybe inspire further ideas in this line of work. If you enjoyed this content, please subscribe and share with people you think could be interested in this. Feel free to share your ideas or suggestions in the comments and I will see you next time.